What's up, everyone, and welcome to another special episode of IndiePod, where we get to talk to the people behind some of our favorite indie games. Today, we have Deanna Galbraith and Robert Torres, some of the members over at 302 Interactive. Thanks for joining, you two. Hey, Josh. Thanks for having us. I am very excited that you guys reached out, that you uh, you know wanted to come on the show. I love uh, talking about all the different types of games and all the different types of studios that are out there because honestly, this is one that uh, probably I wouldn't have noticed on my own. So I love when developers will actually come to us and be like, hey, we want to promote ourselves. You know, that's awesome to hear because I might not have ever known about this game. And I hope that listeners will get kind of that same feeling if they aren't uh, typically in this genre, they might give it a listen. But before we talk about that, before we talk about any of the games or anything to, to that, let's talk about the people. Right. So let's start with uh, let's start with Robert. Um, tell me a little bit about yourself, kind of how you got into video games. Well, I'll start by saying, Josh, you can call me Bobby. Uh, everybody else does. Uh, not even my mother calls me Robert. So, um, yeah, uh, 302 Interactive and, and myself, um, you know, I'm one of the, uh, the co-founders of the studio. Uh, we started back, back six years ago, but six years ago, we were kind of all like figuring out college and and careers and all that stuff. So it wasn't like something that we were seriously working on, but what we did start the company with was the, uh, I guess the hope and the mission that we would make games and we'd keep making games. And that kind of has evolved uh, uh, through the years. And I'd love to tell you more about kind of our story and, and, and where we're at today. Cause I think it's an interesting one. And it's one that I, you know, I think in, in the industry is something we might, might see more of in the future. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about it. But before we get into that, Deanna, would you tell us a little bit about yourself as well? Yeah, for sure. Um, so primarily I'm a game designer, but I also have a lot of experience in doing the marketing and publishing side of things. Um, so I kind of my role at 302 Interactive involves um, working on uh, a lot of the, the game design and interactive design for our projects and uh, marketing them. Nice. Okay, so... Let's talk about 302 Interactive then. Um, how exactly did 302 start up? You know, you, Bobby, you talked a little bit about it of kind of that, that mission of, of creating games, you know, that, that passion, right? What was that moment of, uh, cause I believe you're one of the co-founders. Um, what was that moment of you saying, you know what, we should really do this. Like, cause I think it's so interesting for people who create a studio to actually take that leap because it is, it is very uh, daunting or frightening in times, you know? Yeah, for sure. Um, so our, our CEO, Kyle, uh, he um, is a longtime friend of mine, known him for over 20 years. And uh, he called me one day. I had just graduated college uh, in Miami. And he was like, hey, man, I got this idea for a game. You know, I'm studying game design. And he had recently kind of uh, dropped out of computer science. Uh, I went into game design. Uh, he probably wouldn't say it that way, but uh, but yeah, <laughs> went into game design and you know got inspired to make a game and was like, look, man, I'm learning how to make games. Let's let's do this together. And I was not a game developer. Um, I graduated hmm. with like a, a technology and management degree, and uh, I said, hey, whatever way I can help, let's do this. We'll figure this out together. Um, and you know that year he kind of put together a, a small team. Of, uh, of students uh, at the University of Central Florida. Uh, we started working on a game and several games because they were doing you know projects uh, in school. And um, mm -hmm. there was one IP in mind 
that he really wanted to get off the ground. And that was kind of uh, what we started with. Um, unfortunately, we never actually made that game, but it kind of gave us the uh, awareness and experience that we needed to kind of build uh, a game studio. Uh, and then ultimately a studio that is not just a game studio, but uh, more of a creative agency and product development uh, uh, company. Gotcha, gotcha. And um, just curious, how come the first game that you were working on didn't ever come to fruition? Oh man, so many reasons. Um, but uh, I think pre predominantly we, we just didn't have the... Uh, the time, the skill set, or the uh, or the runway to really make it happen. We did like a very very mm -hmm. small Kickstarter campaign to cover like assets, uh, basically the acquisition of our assets and and um, Unity licenses because we built the, we were trying to build the right. game in Unity, and we ended up ultimately mm -hmm. just giving back the money. Um, not that we didn't use it, but it just didn't feel right taking people's money on Kickstarter and just uh, you know shelving the project. Right, right. Wow, that's interesting. Well, I'm glad you at least gave back that money because there's a lot of stories of that just not happening. So good to know at least uh, you have a bit of morals on your side. Uh, Deanna, tell me a little bit more about how you got into 302 then. Were you one of those, uh, you know, the, the co-founders? Were you someone who joined after? What, what was it like? Yeah, I joined um, after that um, when I joined, they were working on um, actually the original commission game. Um, they needed help with uh, the marketing side of things. So um, started working on that. And then shortly after we started working on the commission 1920, which we recently released. Um, but yeah, throughout that time, we really grew a lot as a studio working on like um, a lot of like virtual reality and augmented reality type of projects. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, it's been it's been fun. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I would hope so. Um, I wanted to talk, I'm glad you mentioned that virtual and augmented reality, because I think it, it is interesting looking at 302 Interactive's profile of, you know, the catalogs, if you will, of items that you've done in the past. It seems to be a varied mix of, of you know, the, the more traditional style game like the commission is where you also have these virtual reality and these augmented reality pieces. You know, what is... I think it's really cool when companies do this because one, I think, you know, VR, there's obviously a big future in that. But uh, one of the main things is I think it's tough a lot of the times to have your hand in a number of these different mediums, if you will, or genres, I suppose, because I would imagine that the resources and the knowledge and, and just the way you build things is quite different. Um, what is what is like the main focus of three three hundred two? Did it did it ever start out, uh, you know, with your mind like in your mind that you were going to work on these virtual reality projects? Did that progress over time? How did that uh, happen? Yeah, um, and I think, like I said, our story is one that we hope to to kind of see happen more in the industry because um, the way that we kind of make games today and, and made the commission and are working on our next game project is um, I think what we think, what we believe to be a, a sustainable model for developing game studios. Um, so basically mm -hmm. when we started uh, almost seven years ago, six and a half years ago, uh, we had a game in mind, we put together a team, you know, GDD documentation, decide what you know tools we're gonna use, what we needed, assets, art, all that stuff, couldn't make the game, gave back money, 
Um, but in that time, we're like, we still want to make games. How are we going to do this? What's the next project? What do we need? What do we do wrong? And at the end of the day, um, we really just needed a team, a little bit of money, um, a little bit of marketing to get that off the ground. But in the meantime, you know, people had to eat, right? People were not just standing around there, uh, you know, waiting for their game to take off and, and starving right. or eating ramen noodles every night. So, you know, Kyle and a few other folks on the team started doing work um, for government contractors that were working in simulation and training. Hmm. Um, so oh, okay. we got like a, a small contract to do that. And the contractor was, well, we kind of worked out a deal instead of like hiring Kyle, uh, we said hire our company. Uh, and they did that. And that was kind of our first uh, step into kind of this agency studio model uh, that we, mm -hmm. we've been operating you know, since then. Um, so that first project was a uh, um, augmented reality project uh, using uh, the Meta AR headset, like the very first one that they came out with. Um, right. It was for one of the, the branches of the military to develop this uh, uh, training uh, um, system for, um, you know, for uh, air traffic controllers. Uh, so it was this crazy thing and that we had never done before but it was using unity right it was still using a game engine to actually create the software so uh, what we started realizing um you know not very uniquely because central florida where we're at where our company's based out of in orlando there's a big industry for simulation and training and in the last you know five years they've really adopted a three to you know 3d uh engine first type of model where all of the content that's being used for their simulation and training is either is being either built in unity or unreal um so yeah. we're like okay we're in this market ready to do this thing we're using unity we can still make games we can still use our our game design skill set um so we started doing more of that and more of that and more of that uh, and then it became our core business to keep doing that and then we started working to figure out Okay, we're spending you know ninety five percent of our time um, working with clients, building these things using Unity and Unreal. Um, you know, how do we get back into making games? Uh, so we started you know thinking mm -hmm. about that and coming up with ideas. I think really for us it was like, what's an idea we can run with? Um, how can we fund it? Do we work? Do we self publish? Do we do we not? Um, things like that. But we started making carving out the time to do it in between our client work to right. get back into publishing games. That's very interesting. Let me ask you this though. Um, let's say, so obviously that starts because it, it makes sense to have these more smaller projects to get you throughout a bigger, longer game development, so to speak, right? It, it makes sense because it fills that time. It fills that that money in the pockets of the people that you're employing, things like that. Uh, which is great, especially starting off. Let's say down the road, right? You create this game that is just the biggest hit. You know, you have the next uh, whatever it is, your Halos, your you know, your your Last of Us, whatever it is, right? But an indie mm -hmm. version of that, obviously. Is that still a model you would foresee? the company sticking to is it more of a this is a great thing to do no matter what or is it to justify the means for now yeah so for us we're uh i think we've found a a niche for ourselves in that 
um, we're this creative agency that will build games. Um, and we mm -hmm. kind of talk with investors and publishers about this kind of concept. And, um, you know, they believe that we can do it and we know that we can do it. Um, so the fact that we would have to do one or the other, um, I don't think in, in this you know, day and age, you actually have to choose. Um, there's mm -hmm. some uh, popular examples of, of companies now kind of doing that, where you'll hear of uh, a game studio um, you know, working on an attractions project for Universal Studios or, or now Unity, right. Right. Um, a game engine developer where their sole business model uh, has always been selling licenses is now getting into the service industry. And in fact, they made a couple acquisitions yeah. in the last year to acquire um, game studio service agents, you know, creative agencies to build out that that uh, that business for them. Um, right. So it's something that's kind of new, but not really talked about. And it's something that we are are really forward about how we kind of work in that we make games and we can be, um, you know, your game designers for hire. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it makes sense. Um, when we're thinking of, and I'm, I'm jumping the gun a little bit as far as the game that we're going to talk about later in this episode, but um, when we're thinking of the Commission 1920 and the other project that you're working with from a client perspective, now I don't, I, and this is probably also a better question to start with, but like how many people are on the team and how many people are, are there any that are just solely client focused versus these more, um, you know, games that are developed slash potentially published by yourself, games created. What is the, the I guess, delineation between who's customer facing versus who's back end working on those games? Yeah, and that's a great question. Um, it does change depending on, you know, pro you know specific project needs. Um, mm -hmm. But right now we're, we know that, um, uh, if this next game project takes off in the way that we want it to, if we will uh, partner with a publisher and, and, you know, kind of find the scope for this next project that we need, that we know we'll, uh, we'll have a dedicated um, game development team. But right now, and in the past, it's been very much a hybrid. We'd have some, some folks that would be six months, you know, on the project or on the game. And then, you know, uh, uh, the rest of the year they'd work on client projects. Um, so we've kind of established like, um, you know, who would work on what, and it's very much, uh, getting buy-in from, from the, from the folks that we work with. So today we're uh, a studio of 10, um, of, of mm -hmm. mostly full-time employees and, and a slew of interns that we, uh, kind of have come on. And then on top of that, we work with a bunch of contractors in the community. We're fortunate enough to have a huge, uh, workforce. Uh, in Central Florida, of you know, game designers, game developers, and artists. It's just, yeah, everywhere you turn, there's, there's somebody who graduated with a game design degree, which is awesome. You know, if we needed to staff up a game studio tomorrow, we would have no problem doing that. Very good, very good. Um, well, since this is a video game podcast, I figured we'd focus on one of your most recent games, which is The Commission 1920. So for those who don't know anything about this game, how would you describe it? And what kind of makes it special, right? Why why create this game at all? All right, Deanna, that one's for you. <laughs> yeah, so 
the commission 1920 it's a turn-based uh, strategy game set in the 1920s where you play as this um uh, dawn of a mafia family and your goal is to manage your resources um and kind of grow your your empire in this fictional city called new shore but yeah you get to play one out of five families and they all have unique backgrounds and strengths and weaknesses um so yeah, lots of uh, any t anything mafia related you can see in the movies. You can probably do in this game. That's awesome. Yeah. So one of my th things when I first heard about this game is personally when I think of like you know mafias or this kind of um, just general theme from the 1920s that you're trying to go for. Uh, Turn-based strategy probably isn't the first genre that comes to mind, just because of how intense or how. Uh, I guess crazy some of those themes can be when you think of those those you know movies that you referenced what was the main inspiration behind that style of gameplay you know why pick turn-based strategy versus say something more action-oriented for that theme you know what was it about kind of the more methodical approach that fit this game yeah the actually we worked with the publisher uh, called 230 am studios on this and um yeah, when we were talking about game ideas, you said that the gangsters organized crime uh, was a really inspirational game for him, um, and he really wanted to do um, like an like an inspired or his own version of that, like his dream game. And we kind of worked with him to to really put it together. But the main um, inspirations was that game. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, one of my one of my favorites, so like jumping into kind of what you can actually do in this game. One of my favorite mechanics is around the loyalty of your individuals. So having that um, the different members that as you take certain actions, you'll get uh, what seemingly is, you know, like positive slash negative ratings as far as their your influence. So those who are as loyal to you can potentially backstab you. They might rat you out to the cops or whatever it might be. Can you elaborate a little bit more on how this works and kind of how much this plays into the strategy of the game? Yeah, um, pretty much you can control, um, like uh, loyalty is a big part. It's a big mechanic in the game where, like you said, um, you know, depending on how loyal they are, they might sing to the cops um, and so on. Um, and what you can help with is also like raise their the capo tax um to help keep them happy or their mouth shut <laughs> um <laughs> but yeah besides that there's also a lot of stuff like uh i know heat is very important too in the game um heat being like if you're doing a lot of illegal activity in one neighborhood for example um you might uh, have the cops like uh be looking into things and you risk getting your members arrested um try to think of uh some other important stuff um, I know there's the XP system where uh, you can in increase your um, your me your members' uh, uh, levels, like uh, associates and soldados, all that fun stuff. And then you have your intel system where you can um, try to gather information from other members of the families. Hmm, that's cool. Uh, I did enjoy the fact that there are multiple families in this as well, right? It's not just one mob boss that you're trying to control and trying to take over the city, right? There's five different families that you can choose to be a part of. 
Um, how big of a difference does it make to be a part of one family versus another, right? Is it going to be, say, a major ro role change in the narrative? Is it more pros and cons to just me mechanics associated with gameplay? How much of a difference does that make? Yes, yeah, so I'm happy to jump in here. Um, each family has its own um, strengths and weaknesses. Uh, and on top of that, they have their own like places on the on the map that they'll start out. So um, with that, you have kind of a different lay of the land with each family that you choose. Uh, and mm -hmm. really, as you get into like the harder modes, um, the AI is really going to have huge advantages against you. And if you don't play to those family strengths, you're going to be at a huge disadvantage. You're just basically playing on extremely hard mode, which I would say is not the uh, uh, it's still an exciting way to play, but get ready to get stopped oh <laughs> can you can you give a like an example of what one family's strength would be and how to to play to it yeah definitely um the main family which kind of uh, acts as like the tutorial family and kind of the main family and the underlying narrative of the game is the kalesi family and the kalesi family's main buff is like a personnel and recruiting buff um, so you can basically, one of the main strategies to use with the Kalesi family is just like overwhelming your enemies. Um, and on a very, in a very risk style, um, a combat where it's very much dice roll, um, you have an advantage mm -hmm. in numbers. So you get additional dice rolls. Um, and if you've ever played risk, um, even, mm -hmm. even if you're outnumbered, you still have some sort of advantage or, or, or some sort of chance to win a fight. It's very much similar to, to right. that in the commission as well in the combat system. But the Kalesis, if you go in there with with thirty units versus some guy, you know, some family six unit in a neighborhood, you know, you're just going to overwhelm them. So that's often, uh, um, you know, the strategy, especially in the early game with Kalesi family. Makes sense. Makes sense. And having those multiple families, right? I, I assume, and you know, you said different levels of difficulty. There's different members that you can play as i i assume that you would want in a game like this a good amount of content but short enough to encourage multiple playthroughs um about how long will each of these playthroughs last on average yeah to get to basically like late game strategy and and to complete a campaign uh it's gonna be by anywhere to like four to six hours um depending on okay how long you deliberate on turns because as right as you take over more of the map and more of the families start getting involved in 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 your neighborhoods and your territories then there's a little bit more deliberation per turn um but yeah we're, we're you know since the game is already launched we have some basic statistics about average playthroughs and it's a little bit less than that um it's anywhere mm. between you know three and five hours Gotcha. And kind of related to that, what's like our end goal here, right? You know, what's what's the end of a campaign? Is it you just being the best mob boss ever? Like, how does one do that? <laughs> yeah, and that's basically the gist is control the map uh, and and a win state is you being the number one family in the commission. Uh, you having the most influence, basically. And the commission uh, system is, you know, something that is not really... Uh, super important in early game but is the most important when it comes to late game and and focusing on climbing the ladder there and doing activity you know basically taking on the missions that the commission is passing down gotcha can you can you uh define a little bit more of like what's the difference between 
early game slash late game, right? Like what's that that definitive moment where you say, oh, okay, you know, I'm getting more into that those later stages. Yeah, early game is very much about establishing um, your territory and your income streams. Um, so setting up your rackets, mm-hmm. basically. Uh, and late game is about deploying your resources to start making, you know, t- t- either attacking or, or defending because people are going to come after you pretty pretty quickly once the once the ai starts establishing itself so right right okay okay so very i mean it feels very much um in a way rts style of you know build your base and then go out and try to conquer yeah very much so you know you mentioned it at at, at earlier in the conversation that the game is turn-based but it's uh really really um follows that kind of management sim uh you know, style where it's about management um, and managing your resources throughout the game so you can start taking action to complete objectives. Perfect. Okay, very cool. And uh, so this actually is a remastered or definitive version of a previous title that you mentioned earlier, just uh, simply titled The Commission. Um, I always find remasters interesting when it comes to motivation behind them. So, uh, especially because of the way that 302 is set up, you know, your studio is set up. What was kind of the reason that you ended up pushing for creating a definitive edition of the commission as opposed to uh, just creating something totally new? Yeah, I think it really came from... um... Basically, we wanted to do better. I think there was a lot of feedback that we got from the first game and uh in a very try hard uh type of manner we we couldn't just put it down um right and for us you know a a sequel didn't make a lot of sense um because that first game was something that um that needed we, we felt that needed to be improved on in a way that we basically rebuilt the entire game. So it wasn't something that we can just push in an update because it was a brand mm-hmm. new game. You know, if you played the first one versus the second one, the game uh, the, the game design principles are similar and the loop is very similar, but the, st- the, the gameplay is completely different. Um, they're all new systems. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it would not play the same. Gotcha, gotcha. Can you uh, can you elaborate a little bit more on kind of what types of those those changes that you can expect? So let's let's say I'm a person who had played the commission, and um, you know whether I loved it or I was lukewarm on it. However, I felt right. If you were trying to get me to come back and say like, oh well, you need to try the definitive edition. What would kind of that that pitch be? Yeah, uh, I can jump in a little bit. Go ahead, Dean. Um. Yeah, I think the the systems are a lot more in depth. Like um, the Intel system grew a lot. Like you're able to now in the new game be able to gather Intel and like the other families um, and and kind of join the opponents like inner circle to get information um, and to re- even recruit them to your own family. Um, there's also a lot of work done with like the title systems to be able to give special titles for your capos, which also helps with like loyalty. Um, and also like new rackets, like more legal activities that you could invest in and, and new traits for each unit. Well, I hope they're excited about that. But let's talk about kind of what's next, because the game came out back in February of this year, which I'm sure you have a few patches or updates planned for the game, right? Um, 
kind of what's what's on the on the pipeline then for 302 interactive because it, it sounds like based on your model you might have a ton of different you know client work right but in between that what are those things that you want to to accomplish whether that be expanding this current game or just completely next step afterwards um yeah right now i think even before the game launch we are already kind of pitching internally new game ideas um so we have something that that's in the works right now that will um probably announce sometime this week or the next week uh, but I, I will say this about our studio and the way that we work too and we're not a triple a studio right so our ability to be agile and pivot and kind of do new cool things without like pissing off the world um, is pretty you know, we're, we're able to do it um, so right. with each game concept that we kind of start working on we we kind of um, crowdsource like feedback like what do you think about this like is this a cool like, game mm-hmm, idea mm-hmm. Um, before we kind of just dive in feet first so we have a few things in the pipeline that we're thinking about like even now you know Kyle our CEO came up to me he's like yeah I'm working on a new GDD uh, this weekend so I'll tell you about it next week and I'm like what okay I thought we're working on a game already <laughs> yeah we are but I got another one so <laughs> And, and we're we're, we're Never, really transparent, yeah. at least with the community, you know, locally and online um, on our Discord uh-huh, server. Uh-huh. So it's like, yeah, for us, it's not about the big secret. It's about getting people involved and, and invested in, in kind of what we're doing. Right, right. Has there has? I always think it's it's interesting because I'm a big fan of transparency. I think especially in the indie scene, you really need it because. It's hard to one get a community, but then once you have that, you really need to to make them stick, right? You really need to make them believe in whatever it is your vision is. Uh, have there ever been times where doing that and that being transparent has actually come to bite you, or maybe maybe not as harsh as that, but maybe it's something like you've tried to pitch a certain idea and it was just something that you thought was great, the team being, and then when it hit the audience they immediately were like, no, what are you thinking? You're crazy. Um, not yet, but our, 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 you know, lifespan, we're still, I think in our infancy, right. As, as companies mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and studios go. So I think something that we look forward to, um, maybe when we kind of start talking about what potentially our next project is that people absolutely hate it or love it. Um, but you know, that, I don't think that's going to discourage us. I think, uh, you know, every once in a while, everybody's bound to put their foot in their mouth. Um, hopefully, mm-hmm. you know, hopefully it's not so bad that we can, can't come back from it. But um, that's that's just, I think, uh, baked into our expectations of what we're going to do, right? When we start oversharing, people are going to have opinions and it's just something we're going to welcome, negative and positive. Right, right. Yeah, I, I think it's the better way to go. Obviously, it does have its pros and cons. Um, I did want to jump back a, a question ago, though, just because I wanted to um, just ask kind of what's on the plate next for the Commission 1920 specifically, right? Um, there was an update that I believe you wanted to talk about. Uh, you mentioned before we started recording, I wanted to give you some time for that just to talk about kind of what's uh next in in the pipeline or if there's any other updates that you might be planning for this game yeah mostly uh the, the tutorial when we released the i guess this might be the uh like actually came from most of the feedback from the community the tutorial that we launched the game with um 
it wasn't in depth enough. Like a lot of the feedback we got was that they felt like they needed more, like they would like to explore more of like uh, more of the systems of the game. Um, so we took a lot of their feedback from that, and we had this new update uh, that has a more in-depth step-by-step tutorial that covers a lot of the major systems in the game. And for future updates, um, I know we have like a lot of uh, bug fixes that we have planned. Um, I believe there's some AI work and tweaks and stuff that we want to do as well. Very cool. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Um, let's wrap this up. Uh, once again, obviously, thank you so much for coming. But I always like to end these shows with some advice for those who are in the indie space, some that you know might be looking to get in. And I'm sure, especially with your newer model uh, that isn't as utilized uh, as you know we normally see in this space, I figure it might make some sense for you to give a little bit of tips and tricks, right? So for those listening who might be interested in starting their own project, starting their own company, whatever it is, right? What would you give kind of a former, uh, former self uh, of yours as far as something that would have helped you along the way, whether that be something that you should have done, something that you you did do that worked out well, or maybe something in between. Yeah, I, I definitely jump in there. Um, I think more transparency is is probably the way to go. So share more, share often. Um, you know, don't be afraid to ask for help. Um, you know. I think the biggest mistake that uh, I see time and time again with you know peers in the industry and you know we I, I personally have run you know indie developer meetups locally and whatnot and what I see is like the biggest challenge for folks is two things one the solar the solo developer adventure that people like to uh, um, to to go on that is a big mistake um, there's few. Uh, folks that have been able to develop a successful game on their own and those few are legends mm-hmm. so you're really setting yourself up for failure if it's a if you have a go big or go home mentality it's like either be a legend mm-hmm. or fail you know how often how often can, can you say you did something legendary it's not very often so set yourself up for success um create a team yeah. you know get people involved with your idea um you know get buy-in from from the community uh um, as early on as you can. Um, and then I think number two, uh, yeah, I think that <laughs> number two was, was that, you know, share, share early, share often and, and, and one find help, right? Don't be afraid to ask for help. Yeah. Yeah. I think it makes sense. I mean, I, it's, it's funny that you mentioned it, the, the, you're either a legend or a failure in, in those regards, as far as like that solo dev project, because it is, people see it right they see someone like a, a toby fox and they're like this person created this amazing game and that's what i want to be right and it's like okay well think about how many people there on are on this earth and then think of how many people there are like those toby foxes right there's very very few in comparison and you only hear about a few of them ever so often so the chances are that it's you it could happen but it is kind of a if you're just doing it because you're like i want that that glory uh, it's a it's a little tough <laughs> especially if it's like your first project too if you're you know if it's your right. first project make sure to you do something small and and you know maybe work with a few people yeah and i mean i'm i'm kind of in the the mindset that you know uh and personally i'm just 
someone who who wants to to work with others. So I'm a little bit biased in my opinion of it, but I I feel very strongly that although someone might be very well uh, well equipped to tackle a solo dev project it's much more likely that it would be even better if there were more individuals, more minds. Like, right, there's obviously a certain point where, yes, it could put a, a wrench in things and it could slow down the process, but having that ability, even if it is just that that back and forth with a community kind of, and that's the whole reason why I, I definitely always push for transparency is because you could sit there and think you have the greatest thing in the world and work on it for years and years. And then when you finally release it, people might hate it because you don't know what others feel about it, right? And having those multiple opinions, those multiple perspectives, those multiple skill sets, it all adds to potentially, uh, you know, a masterpiece. So it's it's definitely something where you shouldn't feel uh, afraid to, to ask for help if you need it because there's... Uh, so many things to do in the indie game world and just in general in life that chances are there's going to be someone that's better at you at one piece even though you're better at another piece right and why not just put those together yeah exactly i mean you definitely said it best there um thank you <laughs> uh deanna do you have anything that you'd like to impart as far as wisdom on uh on the listeners yeah i guess um just yeah, when you're working on your first game, like try to focus on something small and, and achievable. Uh, goal is to just to get something done to be able to show it off. I think that's solid advice. Um, for those listening, the Commission 1920 is currently available. So if any of this sounded interesting to you, be sure to head over to their Steam page, pick it up. Once again, thank you so much both for joining uh, and best of luck out there. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks for having us on. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.